0: You're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Season 5 and the 52nd episode of the True Crime Fix Podcast. Wow, if you've been in my shoes over the last few months... I honestly thought I would never ever say those words again. Before we go on, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory, and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. So it's 2021, and I've missed wishing you a happy new year, and I also missed the podcast's second anniversary, but I think I have a fair excuse. I would just like to express my gratitude to everyone who is still listening to me. As I've said before, I started this as a release from some dark times, as well as a bedtime story for my wife, and I never imagined 27 months later to still be going. Just to update you on the last episode, if you do not follow me on social media, I am now the daddy to an amazing baby girl and the last, oof, I'm not 100% sure how long, has all rolled into one and been one of the most incredible emotional roller coasters ever. Georgie Marie Phyllis was born on the 19th of December 2020, the day after I uploaded the last episode. Twelve weeks early and incredibly vulnerable. So what happened? Well, to keep a long story short as I don't want to make it all about Georgie, Ashley went to the hospital with what we believe to be Stitch, and she ended up being born less than 12 hours later. I suppose she wanted to see what all this fuss was about with this 2020 luck. Georgie spent two nights at the Niku at Stoke Mandeville Hospital, and had a pretty big wobble health-wise, and we ended up being moved to the specialist unit at John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. The good news is that both Georgie and Ashley are both well and truly on the mend, with Georgie lying on my chest as I'm writing this episode at home. Thank you so much for everyone who has contacted myself or Ashley on social media with your well wishes. I really wish I could respond to them all in full, but I just wanted to say in particular thank you to my Facebook admins for keeping everything going in my absence, but in particular to Sarah and my Instagram follower Kelly, known as Crazy Mummy 7 who have been able to reassure me in some particularly dark times. For that, ladies, thank you more than you will ever know. The reason I wanted to mention Georgie was to bring to your attention three charities who have really helped us. The first is the Ronald McDonald charity. If you're in the UK and you've been to McDonald's Takeaway... And you've seen the charity pot at the checkout and ever wondered what it's for, I can now tell you. They provide free housing for parents whose children are in intensive care as long as they need it. This meant that we were only ever three minutes walk from her bedside, but for the peace of mind we were so grateful. The second was the transport unit, Sonnet or the Southampton-Oxford Neonatal Transfer Service, which, in collaboration with two neonatal intensive care units in Oxford and Southampton, it provides emergency neonatal transport in the Thames Valley and Wessex area. They were truly amazing. The skills of our driver, Ash, who did the journey in what should have taken 45 minutes, but actually took 25 for him, whilst safely carrying a precious cargo in the back. And little did we know at the time, but their efficiency saved her life. The final one was SNAP, which is SSNAP, who were based out of the John Radcliffe Hospital, who are basically a support group for premature babies. We cannot thank Christina and her team enough for the amount of support they have given us both emotionally and physically throughout this process. If, God forbid, you ever find yourself in that position, trust me, you will need all of the support you can get. So therefore, the next three months of Patreon fees will be split between the three charities. Talking of Patreon, thank you everyone who has stayed with me during this difficult time and I would also like to welcome Zoe to the True Crime Fix Patreon family. If you would like to join Zoe and everyone else over there, then please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefix. So what's the plan for Season 5? Whilst I was in hospital looking after Georgie, I had plenty of opportunity to research on the web and find some really strange cases from across the world. Now, not every single one of these I will be able to make into a full episode, but as many as I can fit into this season I will do. But then, at the end of the season, I will have a kind of bumper episode where I will tell a number of short stories. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been dedicated to the memory of Marie Trintignant. Marie Trintignant was born on the 21st of January 1962 in Boulogne, France, eight kilometres from the capital Paris. Marie was the daughter of the famous French film actor Jean-Louis Trintignant, whose career has lasted over 70 years And he is still active. Marie's mother was Jean-Louis's second wife, French film director, producer and screenwriter Nadine Marcand. Marie was the middle one of three children, her elder brother Vincent and younger sister Pauline. With such an exposure to the silver screen, it was inevitable that Marie was going to follow in the family footsteps. At the age of four, she first appeared on screen in her mother's film Mon Amour, Mon Amour, My Love, My Love, My Love in 1967. Then tragedy hit the family in 1969. Jean-Louis had landed the role of Marcello Clerici in the film the conformist so had uprooted his family to roam in Italy for shooting One morning on his way to work he went to kiss his nine month old daughter Pauline goodbye to find her dead in her cot She had choked on her early morning feed and was the victim of SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome most commonly known as cot death As a result Marie became withdrawn, and would rarely speak to people outside of her family, a trait which she would continue for a number of years. Despite the career that she would eventually take up, Marie was a very shy individual. Her mother and father would subsequently divorce in 1976, with them both remarrying. She would later smoke pot for a release. As a teenager, however, Marie did not wish to embrace her father Jean-Louis' ambitions for her, seemingly wanting to turn her back on the life of stage and screen, wanting instead to become a vet. This was, however, a very short-lived rebellion, especially after her first serious debut in 1979 in Siri Noir, directed by Alain Corneau who would later marry her mother. In 1980, at the age of 17, Marie performed in La Terrazza alongside her father and would eventually go on to become a successful actress. In 1988 came her defining role in Claude Chabrol's masterpiece Une Faire de Femmes, or The Story of Women, where she would play the role of Lulu a prostitute in Nazi occupied France. One critic claiming that her signature was to play the destitute but resolute. In the early hours of August 6, 1991, Marie had just arrived in La Roche sur Yon for the shooting of a film when she got behind the wheel of her rental car. On a bend, she collided with a pickup which was going in the opposite direction. Marie was thrown through the windshield and she was taken to the emergency room with significant injuries, where they found that she had 0.278 grams of alcohol in her blood. The legal limit is between 0.02 and 0.05. Marie would eventually go on to have four children of her own. Marie's first great love was the drummer of the French rock band Téléphone, Richard Kalinka, with whom she had her first child, Roman, on the 16th of September 1986. Roman himself is now an actor and runs a restaurant. Then, in 1993, she would go on to have another child with French actor Francois Clouzet and that baby's name was Paul. In 1996, she would give birth to her son Leon, whom she would have with Matthias Othin girard Finally, she would have son Jules in 1998 with actor director Samuel Bonchartre, whom she had married a year earlier. While still married to Samuel, in the summer of 2002, whilst preparing to star in the film Janice and John, which coincidentally was being directed by Samuel, but also starred Marie's ex, Francois, and her father. Marie wanted to see a rock concert. A friend recommended Noir Désir, and on the 3rd of July introduced her to the singer Bertrand Conte, at the end of the concert in a village about 90 miles north of Marseille. Marie went to see the band again later in the week and again and again. The pair had hit it off straight away and they swiftly moved in together in Paris even though they both remained legally married to other people. Marie's family base was 445 miles away in Ouzes, while Bertrand was based out of Toulouse in the south of France. For a while, the couple's passion was so great, but never spoke about. On the other hand, Bertrand's wife, Christina, was expecting his second child. The day after she gave birth, however, in September 2002, Christina herself insisted that he should go. Better for him to live this love than regret it all of his life. But the passionate lust which was generated by the honeymoon period of the relationship was, according to many who observed them, neither quiet nor discreet. It overflowed strong and tumultuous, meaning the arguments were fierce. From afar, however, they seemed an ideal couple, somewhat bohemian in nature. Bertrand Conta originally came from the port city of Le Havre. Le Havre is a major port in the northern France-Normandy region where the Seine River meets the English Channel. He was born in 1964, so was two years Marie's Junior. His father was a marine officer and a veteran of the French colonial war in Algeria, which took place between 1954 and 1962. He had hoped his son might pursue a career in law, but after the family moved from La Havre to Bordeaux, Bertrand became obsessed with rock music, and at the age of 17 he left home to pursue his dreams. Bertrand Cantat and Serge Théost-Gay had met in 1980, At secondary school, after Bertrand had moved to Bordeaux. Bonding over their love of music, and with Serge's talents on guitar, they started a band. The band originally called themselves Psychos with a Z, then 6.35, Station Désir, and then finally Noir's Désir, translation Black Desire. By 1986, Noir Désir had signed for the giant French label Barclay Records, who distributed their music through Universal and reignited a flagging French rock scene. The 1980s saw a resurgence of stadium rock acts on both sides of the Atlantic and Noir Désir were more than capable of holding their own explosive concerts made them by far the nation's best act, their albums selling 2.3 million copies. Lead singer Bertrand would emulate one of his heroes, Jim Morrison from The Doors, and would proclaim from the stage, God is dead, Nietzsche is dead, take my hand comrade, I need you. In 1991, the group took some time out to recharge their batteries after a gruelling few years. Bertrand took this opportunity to travel the world and support a variety of causes, including free the Palestinians, combat racism, contest globalisation and, above all, save the environment. But in 1993, the band had to take a second interval imposed on them by the rock and roll lifestyle of excessive amounts of drugs and alcohol during which Bertrand met Christina Rady, a Hungarian art director. In 1997, Bertrand married Christina, and the couple would go on to have two children, Milo, born in 1998, and Alice, born in 2002, as you've heard already. Bertrand and Marie's affair was obsessive and the couple could not be apart from one another while each of them still had to detach from their respective families. Marie is more important than everything, Bertrand is supposed to have said. More than any music. And he was right. Noir Desir fell behind on deadlines set by the record company and touring schedules were put on hold settling the band into yet another hiatus. He is captivated, said the drummer of the band. Bertrand saw less and less of those that were close to him. A friend of Marie noticed, the more they smoked marijuana, the more they fled social life. The more they fled social life, the more they smoked. They ceased to live a real everyday life. Over the summer of 2003, Bertrand Contat followed Marie to Vilnius, the capital of the former Soviet state of Lithuania. Marie had got a role in Colette en Femme Libre, a biographical miniseries about the French author by the same name. Once again, it was a family affair, the series being written by Marie and her mother. Brother Vincent was the producer and Marie's son Roman also had a role. One of Marie's co-stars in the show was the 1980s pop star Leo, who stated in an interview with a UK newspaper, Marie was an actress 100% immersed in her work. Now, however, she was distracted, never ate with the crew, as she usually did, but returned to Bertrand at the Domina Plaza Where they were both staying for meal times. Leo was quoted as saying Marie was a shadow of her former self. On the 14th of July, Marie sent her mother a chilling text message reading Be wise to my sorrow and you will be more tranquil. Signed Fafil Batui, Little Beaten Daughter. Fafil which is literal translation of My Little Girl, was Nadine's nickname for Marie, and she recalled in her subsequent book, My love, how far I was from you of the horrible reality of which you told me in your own way. I thought you meant I was not exactly battering you, but demanding too much. Now, it's impossible to think or talk about the shame and fear had invaded your life. Now I ask myself, were there other signs I missed, marks I did not see? Bertrand Contat did not engage much with the cast and crew of the show. Usually he stayed back at Suite 35 of Domina Plaza, waiting for Marie to finish shooting for the day. He felt excluded by and hated Marie's family and its exclusive world of cinema. They were the part of her that he could not control, said one of Marie's friends, Zoe, who was interviewed after the event. They were reminders that he did not possess her. They were something which gave her joy he wanted to give her but could never fully achieve. As a result, When Marie would leave for work every morning, he would proceed to spend the days on his own, stewing. At two o'clock in the morning of Sunday the 27th of July, an Italian tourist was woken by what he thought was a chair crashing into the floor of Suite 35 at the Domina Plaza Hotel. The disturbance was followed by a man's shout and then another crash. The Italian complained to the reception desk, who in turn sent a night porter to investigate and asked the people staying in suite 35 not to disturb other guests. The porter stated that a ruffled man peered around the door, apologised and assured him that there would be no more noise. And indeed there was none. So what had caused the bang and what exactly happened is still a mystery. Marie Trantignon, however, now laid in a coma in the hotel room on the floor behind the door as the porter had knocked. Cantat had then undressed Marie and put her to bed, convincing himself that she was asleep. His lover now lay comatosed in bed. Kantar waited a while, then he made a phone call to his wife Christina, then another to Marie's husband Samuel. He said there'd been a fight. Nothing serious, things got out of hand, it's over, she's asleep. At 4.30am Kantar had called Vincent, Marie's brother to whom he complained about his sense of exclusion from the family. Vincent arrived at the hotel half an hour later. Marie's asleep, Kantar said, as Vincent entered the apartment. The men talked about Kantar's concerns for over two hours before Vincent decided he was going to go into Marie's room and check on his sister. Then he saw her face, bruised and bloodied, lips swollen, nose broken. At 7.30am, Vincent called for an ambulance, who arrived shortly after and took Marie to the Vilnius University Hospital. By mid-morning, Kantar had been admitted to the same hospital as Marie, two stories above her, suffering a supposed overdose which his supporters subsequently claimed to have been an attempted suicide. In order to be extremely sensitive to anybody who has lost a loved one, or has had a loved one issue a cry for help by overdose, I'm not going to quote the French newspaper directly, but there was a question that Cantar's suicide attempt was 100% genuine, given the fact that he had taken two packets of vitamin C and a couple of antidepressants. For adults, the recommended daily amount for vitamin C is between 65 to 90 milligrams per day, and the upper limit is 2,000 milligrams a day. Although too much dietary vitamin C is unlikely to be harmful, Mega doses of vitamin C supplements might cause diarrhoea and nausea only. Not likely to take someone's life. Near midnight on Monday the 28th of July, an aeroplane specially sanctioned by the French Minister of Culture, Jean-Jacques Alignon, left the military base of Villa Koblé, bound for Vilnius, in Lithuania. On board was Stéphane Delageau, who was a top neurosurgeon from the Hartmann Clinic in a suburb of Paris, approximately a mile from the Arc de Triomphe. The plane touched down in Vilnius just before dawn. Dr Delageau was then rushed to the University Hospital where Marie was lying in a critical condition, comatose. By 8am on Tuesday the 29th, Dr. Delejeux had commenced surgery, which was Marie's second operation since arriving in hospital 48 hours earlier, having had a local neurosurgeon attempt to relieve the pressure on her brain already. This was her final chance of survival, claimed the news reports which were coming out of the Lithuanian capital. But later that day, Dr. Delajo announced that the operation had failed. Marie was effectively brain dead. On Thursday the 31st of July, Marie was flown back to Paris at her family's request. If she really is to die, I want her to die in France, her mother told the press. At 10:20 a.m. on Friday the 1st of August 2003, Marie Trantignon died at the Hartmann Clinic in Paris. An initial autopsy took place on Sunday the 3rd of August, and it found that Marie died after receiving several blows to the face. Her official cause of death was a cerebral edema. French forensic pathologists issued the initial report, saying that the victim was struck several times on the face and passed out following these blows a coma and death followed by the head injury linked to these blows. Marie's funeral took place on the 6th of August 2003, attracting thousands of mourners, including politicians and stars of stage and screen. The funeral was an all-white occasion, with the mourners all wearing white as they gathered around a white coffin at the Père Lachaise Cemetery, on the edge of Paris, ironically a few plots away from the grave of Contar's idol, the Dawes' Jim Morrison. During the committal, her brother Vincent said, You are not in that coffin, Marie, as he threw a flower into the grave. You are in my heart and cannot be in two places at once. As soon as he was well enough to leave the hospital, Konta was placed under provisional detention until August the 14th. What no one was doubting at this point was that Konta would definitely be charged by the Lithuanian authorities with the crime of non-assistance to persons in danger due to his actions, but at the time nothing else was being considered. In an odd turn of events, however, this charge could also yet have been given to Vincent, Marie's own brother. Because Vincent had visited the suite after the rowing had stopped, and had been made aware that there had been an accident, and that Marie was apparently sleeping soundly in her bed, as he had not checked on her, he could have fallen under that charge too. But fortunately, the Lithuanian prosecutor decided against charging him. During the investigation, Bertrand Kanta was charged with murder as the terminology of the new Lithuanian Penal Code came into force on May 1st 2003. Kanta would now appear before Vilnius Regional Court. Much like the case that I covered in Belgium, there were three professional magistrates who made up the tribunal without the assistance of a jury. On August 21st, 2003, Bertrand Cantat was taken out of Lukisku prison where he was being held for a preliminary hearing for nearly seven hours. Parisian judge Nathalie Torquet accompanied by two police officers from the criminal brigade in France, made their trip to Vilnius. She took part in the proceedings alongside a Lithuanian judge. Dressed in a denim jacket, thrown over a t-shirt, Kantar detailed the argument that had broken out in Suite 35 of the Domina Plaza at around 1am. That night, He had confronted Marie about something which he had confronted her about before, and that was receiving affectionate texts from our husband Samuel. He alleged that, If our relationship doesn't suit you, just go back to your husband. Then a violent argument broke out, followed by an exchange of blows. What the prosecution called an unbalanced melee. Contar told the court whilst testifying. My slaps weren't light slaps. They were strong slaps, really very strong slaps, given from the flat and the back of the hand. But he said that he did not remember the quantity, but believed that there was only four. After one such strike, Marie collapsed, lying near the sofa, her body, half on the carpet and half on the hard floor. Kantar continued, It is possible that her head hit the door frame. During the hearings, Bertrand Kantar's lawyers had the opportunity to invoke some of the 13 mitigating circumstances. In Lithuanian law, Article 59 states that when imposing a penalty, the court should take into account the mitigating circumstances which are provided for in law as constituting the body of the crime. These include The offender has provided assistance to the victim or otherwise actively avoided or attempted to avoid more serious consequences. The offender has confessed to commission of such act provided for by the criminal law and sincerely regrets or has assisted in the detection of this act or identification of persons who have participated therein. The offender has voluntarily compensated for or eliminated the damage incurred. The criminal act has been committed due to a very difficult financial condition or desperate situation of the offender. The act has been committed as a result of mental or physical coercion, where such a coercion does not eliminate criminal liability. The commission of an act has been influenced by a provoking or venturesome behaviour of the victim. The act has been committed at the request of the victim who is in a desperate situation. The act has been committed by exceeding the limits of self-defence. The act has been committed in a state of extreme agitation caused by unlawful actions of the victim. The act has been committed by a person of diminished legal capacity. The act has been committed by a person intoxicated by alcohol or drugs against his will. A voluntary attempt to renounce commission of the criminal act has been unsuccessful. You get the picture. Article 130 also gives the possibility to judges to recognise the state of extreme excitement of the murderer. This provision assumes that the victim provoked him before the facts. In this case... The maximum penalty is reduced to six years imprisonment. There was also the possibility that Bertrand Contat could serve his sentence in a French prison provided that the Lithuanian authorities gave their consent. Sentence adjustments would then therefore be possible in accordance with the French prison system. meaning: This could reduce his time served even further. He couldn't be retried in France, but Marie's family may demand damages through a civil suit. At the request of the magistrate, doctors delivered their final verdict on the autopsy on the 27th of October. This was held in open court, and on the whole, they confirmed the version of events given by Contat. However, this did not prove his innocent as he believed. Thankfully, gone are the days of, the woman is not conforming to my ideology, so I think I'll slap her into submission. Sorry, I digress. The brain lesions which caused Marie's death were, I quote, compatible with Mr. Contar's statements, namely the use of the flat or even the back of the hand in a violent back-and-forth movement. But the main question was, how did Bertrand Contar not think this could happen? Here again, the doctors provided an explanation. For a layman, the state of a coma can be confused with sleep, especially as the breathing is regular and deep. Contar has said that she was breathing. I wiped the blood from her face, but she did not wake up because she had been drinking a little. On this point, however, his version seems a bit difficult to accept. How could he have thought that those blows simply put his partner to sleep? Surely, the only way a smack round the face leads is to unconsciousness or a knockout, isn't it? Anyway, As for Marie, she had immediately plunged into a deep coma. Every minute counted, and Contar had failed to help her. To quote L'Express newspaper in France, who reported to the Associated Press, The interrogation, dry, technical, slowed down by the need for translation, is almost over, when the French drudge, asks the final question. Are you aware of having killed Marie? Contar then launched into a long monologue, bursting into tears, addressing the court for ten minutes. He said he accepted responsibility for what had happened and begged for the absolution of Marie's family. I know that I'm not capable of doing this. I know that all I can do is ask for forgiveness, just as I have done from the outset. I loved Marie with all my heart, and I always will love her. And I am thinking at all times of her and her family, of her children, and I know what despair I have put them in. Whilst awaiting the final trial to begin, the Vilnius public prosecutor accepted a special visitation regime. In addition to his Lithuanian lawyer, who went to prison every single Monday, Kontar was allowed to meet with his relatives for almost two hours a day in a room fitted out as a visiting room. Bertrand Kontar's parents decided to rent an apartment in Vilnius which was used to reside all those that wished to visit him in prison. Visitors to the three-room apartment included at one point or another Contar's parents, his wife Christina and his six-year-old son, his sister and the musicians of the group Noir Desir. The trial took place at the Vilnius Courthouse in March 2004. Contar pled guilty to causing the death but still denied murder. He told the three judges, everything happens very fast. Never ever did I want things to happen that way. This hand should never have risen, and I do not accept myself having raised this hand. Kantar added, Marie was clinging on to me. I wanted to shake her off. She was beside herself. I was beside myself. I threw her onto the sofa. Sontar's lawyers stated during the trial that he is guilty of murder with passion, defined as a crime committed under the duress of extreme emotion triggered by the victim's behaviour. But at the trial, the photographs taken the day after the tragedy at the Vilnius Hospital showed Marie unconscious and intubated with a swollen face, a broken nose a bruise on each of her eyes and two stitches on the right brow bone. In his final statement to the court, prosecutor Vladimir sergivas said Contar had provoked and escalated the conflict with nearer 19 blows landing than the four that he confessed to. The prosecution recommended a sentence of nine years imprisonment. Kantar was ultimately sentenced to eight years in prison for his part in Marie's death, with the conviction being murder with indirect intent, otherwise known as manslaughter. And that started in a cell located in the basement of the prison. Kantar was, however, treated with some respect. He was left alone. He had a television set. Another privilege was that he could listen to music on his own CD player. He was entitled to a daily walk of less than an hour. In addition, once a week he received a visit from a psychologist with whom he talked to for half an hour. At the request of his lawyers, Contar was moved from the Lukescu prison to a detention centre in Morettes, just south of Toulouse in France in September 2004. Contar asked to be released from jail early on parole in September 2007. Contar's behaviour in Muret prison was declared exemplary by the officials Le Monde newspaper reported. It was also declared his rehabilitation as a musician should also be aided after Noir Désir had signed a new record deal with the Barclay label. I don't think we can present a better case, said Olivier Metzner, Contar's lawyer. However, as with a lot of this case, Marie's family had been forgotten. Nadine, Marie's mother, declared that any release would be too soon. I fear that his release, which is too premature, would be taken offensively by anyone who is fighting over the impartial punishment of assaults of women, she declared in a letter sent to the judge considering the request. There, under French law, he was only to serve three years before being released in 2007. So what happened after Contar's release? He would go back to live with Christina Raddy in Bordeaux. However, on the 10th of January 2010, Christina Raddy hanged herself at their home. In their first interview since her death, Christina's parents told Le Journal de Manche that life with Contar post-prison had been a nightmare. Bertrand scared her. She wanted to leave, but he blackmailed her. If she left him, something dreadful would happen. Christina was living in a state of psychological terror. It was a love story that became a nightmare, they told the newspaper. There were later accusations that years of mental and physical abuse were the trigger for her suicide these accusations were never proven. Contard and his band Noir Désir parted ways in 2010, not long after his parole was over, but he tried to resurrect his career with a new band, Detroit, in 2013. Fortunately, the French people never forgot Marie and would constantly petition to have him removed from festivals and would protest outside venues that would allow him to perform. As for Marie's family and friends, in 2016, in an interview with Gala in France, Samuel Benchitrit spoke about Marie and how he remembered her, but also shed some light on what might have caused the argument. On his arm, he tattooed the first name of Marie backwards. It was also stated in the interview that on the day that Marie lost her life, it was a text message sent by Samuel to Marie, at the end of which he signed Mapati Janice, an affectionate pet name after Janice Joplin, whom she had played in Janice and John, the last film that they shot together. It was this simple affection which sparked Bertrand Contar into the ultimate fury which would end fatally. Even though Richard, Francois, Matthias and Samuel have all successfully rebuilt their love life, no one forgets the happy times that they had with Marie. Francois Clouzet, who did not hesitate to mention on several occasions What a beautiful person she was. By losing Marie, I lost a woman whom I had been madly in love with, he explained. Every year, all of Marie's sons reunite. The sons of Marie themselves have become fulfilled and enterprising young men. Paul wants to be a writer. Jules starred in Asphalt, directed by his father. Roman co-starred with Isabelle Huppet in The Future of Mere Hansen Love. She remains immortal in the hearts of the men who loved her so much. In the words of Marie's mother, Your murderer was drawn to your formidable love of life, and he tried to take it for himself. Once again, thank you so much for all of your amazing support and loyalty throughout this troubling time. You are all phenomenal. So, as I alluded to in the intro, the aim is to visit some new countries for the podcast, including Argentina, Malta, South Africa and Tunisia. Please make sure that you follow me on one of the social media platforms for regular updates on the show. On Twitter, it's at @truecrimefixpod. That's at @truecrimefixpod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information. On the week's cases. Also, a reminder that the podcast is now available on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search true crime fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, never thought I'd be saying this again. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.